0: From the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California, I'm Eli Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. So, do we have any questions, comments?
1: I just have a question about the circumcision devices used during the Jewish um, circumcision. Um, I believe there are two of them. One is the Mogan, and then there's another one. Um, so my question is, what's the difference between the two? And then I have a second sub-question. Um, is about the Mogan. I heard that was that company went out of business. So could you comment
0: on that? Sure. Um, so the traditional um, Jewish circumcision device is um is a, a sort of a shield it's what you saw in the more traditional bris that was depicted in the film so in the one that took place in the synagogue as opposed to in the family's home and what that is it's just a sort of flat piece of metal with a slit in the middle and the, that's it's a very very simple thing and that's sort of the traditional way in which mohels have done circumcisions for centuries um the mogan clamp is a modified version of that device so it's kind of a similar concept but it also has a clamping action and it locks Um, and those are the two ones that were depicted here and those are the ones that are most commonly used um, for jewish ritual circumcision the mogan company did go out of business Uh, they were sued into oblivion by uh, a very nice fellow by the name of david llewellyn who i had the pleasure of meeting a few weeks ago on the tour Um, and they went out of business uh, because David Llewellyn sued them for um, some botched circumcisions. Um, as it turns out, when you look at complication rates for circumcision, um, the the um, the Mogan clamp is responsible for a higher percentage of um, uh, sort of accidental cutting away of part of the glands and that is simply because of its design. Um, the Gomco clamp, and again, you know, I feel like we're sort of comparing medieval torture devices here but but the Gomco clamp actually has um a metal cap that goes over the glands so that it's virtually impossible to cut off any part of the glands using that device it takes longer and looks a lot more painful i don't know <laughs> again you know we're, we're comparing uh different forms of pain here which is very difficult but it is very it is harder to cut off part of the glands uh, it's it's virtually impossible to do so with the GOMCO clamp with the GOMCO clamp and with the Mogan because of the way you have to draw up the foreskin into that little slit um, and then clamp it because the structure is so small uh, sometimes it's hard for the practitioner to know whether they've pulled the glands up into that clamp or not and then to know so it, it requires more skill is what i'm getting at to use And um, that's probably why it had a higher rate of complications. And that's how uh, David Llewellyn was uh, successful in suing them for for one of those complications. And they, yeah, it's true. They're out of business now. Sure.
1: Yeah, hi. There um, there was recently been a a preliminary study um, done by Dan Bollinger and Robert Van Hal on what's called um, Alexithymia, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, that's right. Which uh, the definition is the inability to describe emotions in a verbal manner, um, and that has been associated with circumcision. I was wondering maybe if you could comment
0: on that. Sure. Um, so we're getting into complicated territory now. Um, Alexithymia, as you you rightfully pointed out, is a, a, a psychological disorder in which the person has a difficulty expressing emotions. Um, and uh, the Bollinger-Van House study that came out very recently, I think it's just a week ago, two weeks ago maybe, it study, right? yeah, it's a preliminary study. It's very important to point out, it was uh, self-selecting, um, and so there are uh, sort of, uh, let's say that there are uh, limitations as to how useful the data is at this point in time. Um, it's definitely interesting. Um, it's really hard to make, I think it's it's very difficult for a whole series of methodological reasons to make associations between infant circumcision and psychological disorders or issues. I spoke to Ronald Goldman about this not too long ago and he he, he agreed with me that, that these sorts of um, correlations are very, very difficult to prove um, and there's also not really as much money out there to prove any kind of harm related to circumcision as there is money to prove benefits to circumcision, and that um, may sound strange or counterintuitive because, in general, you know, if you can show a sort of um, you know a man bites dog scenario in any field, that w- it would seem that that sort of a thing would be pretty simple to get funding for, but this is a practice that's so deeply embedded and is so tied up and connected to deep psychological issues that individuals and we as a culture have that um, there is not so much of a will to discover the harms that might be related to this practice. So there's not a lot of money, there's not a lot of will, uh, which translates into very few studies on this subject, add to that the methodological complications of actually demonstrating any of this conclusively, and it becomes a very tricky thing to do. Um, one of the ways of getting around this is to talk about behavior. So um, and the, there are very few studies even on that. You know, How does circumcision affect behavior? The one that I'm aware of that's most prominent is um, Edward Laumann's study. Uh, Professor Laumann, who was in the film, did a study, and after controlling for all sorts of variables, found that there was actually uh, a demonstrable um, change in the sexual behavior of sexual of uh, circumcised men versus intact men in the United States. Uh, he he talks about some of these you know there's an uh, increased frequency of masturbation among the circumcised uh, after all other factors are controlled for, and a wider variety of sexual practices. Uh, And he attributes this actually uh, to two things. Um, And uh, Professor Lauman is is really sort of a disinterested party. I mean, he's just sort of a, he's a sociologist. He's, as he said in the film, he's an expert in quantitative analysis. Uh, And he was just, you know, he had access to this very large survey, the social life uh, health survey in the United States, and he extrapolated data related to circumcision. Uh, And his explanation as to these uh, differences between intact and circumcised men went as follows. He said to me, number one, um, because we're a circumcising culture, it may very well be that intact men have a harder time getting uh, women to perform oral sex on them. That was one thing he said. The other thing he said, which I thought was very interesting, again, difficult to prove, and we know that there are differences in sexual behavior. We don't know how to attribute it, but his theory was that circumcised men are constantly searching for a sexual satisfaction that they simply can't get because they've lost primary erogenous tissue in their circumcision whereas intact men get a very satisfying sexual experience off the bat therefore circumcised men are masturbating more engaging in more uh, and, and uh, a wider variety of sexual practices because they're chasing a kind of satisfaction that they can't get. Beyond that, and I think even that is sort of pushing the boundaries of what we can actually say accurately about this, um, it's very difficult. I, I find it very difficult to talk about any of these things with any degree of certainty. Um, I hope that there will come a time when our tools for looking into things like this are, are better. But at, at the current state of things, I think that's, that's where we stand. Yes, I just wanted to ask a question about the, um, you, you kind of raise a few questions in the film um, about you know, maybe what your decision would be if you had children, um, but you don't actually specifically say you know, if you or your brother had made a, a concrete decision for the future, and I was just curious if, if you had, if you were interested or in, are able to share that. Sure. Um, I'd like to address why I didn't have that in the film if I may, and then I'll tell you what I've decided. Um, I see this film as a, a, an access point for all sorts of different people to talking about this subject in a deep and high-level way many time, for many people the first time. And while I try not to hide my own position in the film, and I think it's pretty clear how I feel about this subject, I also don't think that my particular perspective on this is the most important part of this conversation Um, now i tried to make a film that was true to my own experience and i tried to mirror um, my intellectual and emotional journey in the way i edited the film and structured it Um, but it's not as a work of art i didn't feel it important to be so direct now to answer your question uh, i i would never ever circumcise a child. um, I I think it's ethically wrong, and I would never do it.
2: I have a question. Um, You mentioned Ronald Goldman a couple minutes ago, and he of course wrote questioning circumcision, a Jewish Jewish perspective, and circumcision, the hidden trauma, plus probably a bunch of other things. Did he have feedback for your film, or had you connected with him before making this?
0: Yeah, I actually interviewed him for the film, um, and his interview didn't make the final cut. Um, it is on the special features, uh, part of it's on the special features on the DVD. Um, and I reconnected with him on this tour, and I did an interview with him on this very podcast, uh, which was wonderful. Um, and yeah, we talked about it. Um, we have a slightly different approach Um I mean, you know, not just because I'm a filmmaker and he's a psychologist, but um, he, uh, Ronald Goldman doesn't um, talk to Orthodox Jews. Um, that's sort of part of his approach, is that if you're Orthodox, he doesn't bother. Um, and I, I, a lot of people are like that. I, I met some secular humanist rabbis who are against circumcision, who, you know, they said the same thing. They said well, you know, we don't fight battles that we can't win. Um, I think that that's a strategic error. I think that the only people at this point in Jewish history that have the technical skill required to make advancements in Jewish law are the Orthodox, uh, which is not to say that, I, you know, it's not a, a sort of far out their idea of engaging Orthodox people on this issue. But uh, since the film came out, I've been doing just that um, in many different ways. Um, and I've had Orthodox people come and see the film some of them even really appreciate the work that I did here um, and the the issues that I'm raising um, so uh, that's that's a difference in approach that we have uh, but th- on the other hand you know Ron's point about the vast majority of uh, Jews living in North America are not Orthodox um, is th- that's true and um, and uh, it's A strange turn in Jewish history that the liberal movements have kind of not taken this issue up in a serious way. There was a like a blip in Germany in the late 19th century when the reform movement first got started. They were reevaluating all sorts of Jewish rituals and making all sorts of radical changes. Um, And there was a small discussion about circumcision and uh, eventually that subsided and it continued as a practice and now as you saw in my film the representatives of the liberal movements who you'd expect would want to talk about this issue and, and understand that there's a serious conflict here and that you know maybe things need to be moved forward they they're the natural audience as it were for this message. They're kind of in a very strange place in their history where they're hiding their heads in the sand about a whole bunch of issues and looking over their shoulder at the Orthodox for a whole other bunch of issues. So there's a lot of internal post-Second World War politics going on here. Uh, But the bottom line is that the movements themselves are not taking this issue seriously and they're very scared. I find when I approach Jews that the liberal Jews are more scared of what I'm doing than the Orthodox Jews, which is a very ironic and strange state of affairs. Um, But the people, and American Jews nowadays, it must be said, are largely unaffiliated. Um, They may go to the synagogue that happens to be closest to them or the temple that happens to be closest to them, but they don't really, in previous generations, they were strongly sort of identified as reform, conservative, orthodox, reconstructionist. Um, But nowadays, we're sort of in a post-denominational world. The only people who really care about denominational differences are the orthodox, for sure, and then the sort of professional class of Reform, conservative Reconstructionist Jews, like the people who are employed by the movements, the rabbis and the cantors and the, those people. But the average, the bulk of American Jewry, I don't think are even aware of the theological differences between the denominations. And I think, in theory, are, could be very receptive to this sort of idea. Um, and in practice, I can tell you that this is true also of a large number of Orthodox Jews that have simply not thought through the implications of this ritual. Uh, thank you. Hi, um, I was wondering what you hope to achieve with your film. Does that make sense? Sure. It's a good question. Um, because uh, well, I have to, it's a question I ask myself all the time because um, I'm dealing with a very politically charged subject here. Um, and you'll see in the next project that I'm working on, probably even more so. Um, and so the question of who am I and what am I doing here is a really important one. Um, and I think that I'm an artist. I see myself as an artist. I see this as art. Um, But it's art that's meant to get people thinking in a particular way. Um, And I'm trying to... I'm trying to do a lot here. I'm trying to relieve people of misconceptions. I'm trying to educate people. And I'm trying to put the information and the tools into the hands of average people to radically rethink a common practice that I think is harmful. That's sort of what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to do it artistically, and, and this may be there may be a difference here between how I judge my success as an artist and the way an activist would judge their success as an activist. I judge my success as an artist based on the quality of the experience I'm giving my audience. An activist I think judges their success based on uh, the number of people that they're able to convince. So I think there's an important distinction there. Um, And I I do think that, you know, to a certain extent this is activism. But again, how I judge the success of my work is not how many people I'm able to persuade. It's how good an experience am I providing and and how... um, what are the quality of the tools that the audience come away with?
1: I noticed that she, um, she talked about the health benefits, but I don't believe uh, Jews circumcise for health benefits. Is that correct, or am I mistaken on that?
0: Well, I tried to get a wide swath of Jews to answer the question, why do Jews circumcise their sons? And the Reform Movement's official position, apparently, is that that's why we do it. Um, According to Donny Aaron, who was the head of the reforms Me Law program at the time, uh, I went to the top. I wanted to know what the what the position is. Why we do why according to the reform movement do we do this? And that's what I got, um, which is disappointing on many levels. Um, it's disappointing to me because it's, as far as I'm concerned, intellectually dishonest. Uh, it's what my father in, calls in the film apologetics. He says some groups with this derision in his voice, and he means the reform, um, because he knows that this has been their position for some time now. Um, so I don't know what else to say other than I'm supremely disappointed in a once great movement. <laughs> um, no, for the most part, I don't think most Jews would say that. Uh, I think that's sort of really hard sell. Um and the health benefits only—that that whole argument doesn't predate the late 19th century anyway. So, um, you know, for most of Jewish history, that was not part of it. In fact, uh, when we talk about the sexual effects, um, you know, there are there are sources in the Jewish tradition that say, you know, we know that it has damaging effects on sexuality. And for some people—for some Jewish commentators, that's why it's done— Moses Maimonides most famously um, says that, you know, we circumcise because it dampens sexual pleasure and um, that frees a man up to do the more important things in life. He also interestingly says that uh, women who have sex with intact men have trouble leaving them. Um, So, you know, some very prescient uh, medieval thinking going on there. Uh, Moses Maimonides, of course, was, uh, was a physician. There are also other texts that talk about the Um, you know, the sort of, uh, I just learned this uh, yesterday, actually, Rabbi Bula was saying that uh, in Chabad, this uh, particular branch of uh, Hasidic Jews, that um, they say, why is the baby crying? He's crying not because he's in pain, but over the loss of the future sexual pleasure that he's going to get from, that he might have gotten from his foreskin. So, again, they're, you know, spotted throughout the Jewish tradition. There's this acknowledgement that this is um, damaging. We know from the Talmud that the rabbis knew that children died from this on occasion, whether from hemophilia or, um, you know, circumcision-related complications. Uh, And it was still a central practice. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, it's a covenant. It's what Heshi Warsh said. I mean, that's really the root uh, Jewish reason is that it's, uh, that I mean, that was given is that this is a covenant between the Jews and God, um, and it's sort of part of the deal. You know, you do this to your sons, and you're my people, kind of thing. I was wondering, is there any precedent for allowing someone to uh, make that decision, like within the Jewish community, to make the decision when they're older or something like that? Or has there any, been any cases of that, or any precedent set? Well, there are cases of situations in which um, Jews are left intact. The most obvious thing that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, in the Soviet Union, it was illegal to perform circumcision. Um, this came from a anti-religious place, largely in sort of a suppression of, you know, the Jewish religion, because in, under communism, that's not an acceptable form of human expression. Um, And so you had millions of Jewish men who were not circumcised because, I mean, there were severe punishments for being circumcised. And so they then came to be circumcised as adults. They made the decision to do it and they they had it done. Um, The other part, the other point in Jewish history in which uh, large numbers of Jewish males weren't being circumcised was uh, near the time of the Inquisition, sort of 15th, 16th century, when... um, Jews went underground. Uh, You have this phenomena in Spain and Portugal of Jews becoming Moranos and Conversos, and they sort of, um, they were Jews, but they they converted and they pretended to be Christians, and then they came out, and there was like a whole period in Jewish history where there was, Jewish identity was a very fraught issue because these people were sort of half Christian and half Jewish, and they were hiding from the Inquisition, and they came back, into the Jewish communities. And then circumcision at this point in Jewish history became very important as an identifying marker.
2: I have a two part, um, oh, three. I just couldn't remember the third. So the first is that I've read and heard that the original Jewish tradition was just a nicking of the foreskin, much like perhaps like you just mentioned, the nicking of the circumcision scar if a male has converted and already been circumcised. Um, and and so I'm wondering if you know if that's true and then perhaps how it switched or... Um, do you want me to go one at a time?
0: No, I, I can hold more than one in my head, I hope.
2: <laughs> I've been having a hard time with it. Um, the second part is that I also, um, that part of the tradition was the mole sucking the blood from the penis, something about penile mouth contact, but I had seen a YouTube video of a bris where a glass tube was used, and it said that that's what's used now, but perhaps there was a story about a baby dying from contracting herpes from this or something. And then lastly is, um, you know, it's said, though the number varies, that maybe more than 100 boys die of circumcision complications from hospital. Circumcisions in the US. Do you hear much about this currently in the Jewish community? Because perhaps,
0: yeah. Sure. Great. So, uh, the first part of the question uh, very simply, it's a common misperception that I hear from a lot of activists, this notion that it was just a ritual neck. It was never a ritual neck, never. There was a time in Jewish history when it was less radical than it is today. And what they did was they, it was much more similar to the way Muslims perform circumcision today, which is um, they cut off the part of the foreskin that overhangs the glands. Um, definitely, almost definitely ablating the ridge band in that procedure, but not the radical form of circumcision that we have today. So to your second part, um, how did this develop? Well, uh, again the less radical practice was the cutting off of the anterior foreskin that overhung the glands and what happened was during uh, the hellenic period um, jews were enamored with uh, hellenic culture and um, many of them went to the gymnasiums and even performed uh, in the olympics now the olympics were performed in the nude however um, showing of the glands was considered to be vulgar So a circumcised male could not really participate in the Olympics. So what Jews started doing to fit in better was they started restoring their foreskins. And they would put weights on them. And um, it was, uh, I mean, if you have some foreskin left, it's a reasonably simple procedure to restore it. Uh, It doesn't take so long. The rabbis caught wind of this and instituted the more radical form of circumcision to prevent men from being able to restore foreskins that's the history of that now going to your third part of your question once that was instituted there were three parts to the traditional circumcision the first is called mila in which the cut is made the second part was priya that's the tearing away of the remaining mucosal layer and the third part is mitsitsa which is the sucking now the first two parts were essential and seen as essential and central parts of the practice and the rabbis made it so that if some of the mucosa remained or it wasn't torn away it wasn't considered a valid circumcision so it had to be completely ablated at that point for the reason that i mentioned about prevent preventing people from restoring their foreskins the mitzitzah is actually mentioned the suction the direct oral to genital suction is mentioned along with a whole other host of things that were supposed to help in the healing process and prevent infection. I and mean, they didn't know what infection was in those days, but it, it's, it's discussed alongside the medical uh, parts of the practice, not the ritual parts. Uh, using cumin was a, is also mentioned in the same sort of part of the Mishnah and the Talmud. Um, when the germ theory of disease came around in the 19th century, Edward Koch and Pasteur and you know all these folks, Um, rabbis started noticing that um, babies were getting infected uh, with this mitzitzah bepeh, this direct oral to genital suction. Uh, Before that, they didn't have the concept of infection. They didn't understand what that meant. As soon as that happened, a number of very prominent rabbis um, ruled that you need to use uh, a tube so that there's a separation between the mouth and the penis for the suction. That is... Sort of the mainstream Orthodox practice today is the use of the tube. There are, however, members of the Orthodox community, especially the Hasidim, Hasidic Jews in particular, insist on direct oral to genital suction. And that has to do with uh, Hasidut, um, this philosophy, this uh, branch of Judaism that is mystical, uh, uh, s- somewhat Kabbalistic, and has ascribed theurgic meaning to every step of the process. So a tube won't do for them. And yes, in 2005, two babies died of oral to genital herpes infections as a result of an infected MOHEL. As far as I know, that MOHEL is still working today. Um, And in my opinion, it's um, due to the great irresponsibility and impotence of the New York uh, Health Department that they are still out there.
2: But hemorrhage and infection? or even word of a botched circumcision? Like, do you hear anything about that in the community?
0: Oh, well, I hear stories. I mean, people know that I'm the circumcision guy. (laughs) So I hear stories all the time about botched circumcisions. Um, And it's sort of the way the stories are told are with a kind of, it's almost like like a natural disaster has happened right, agency is removed from the equation, Um, it's not seen as, as, you're not seen as having a choice in the matter, so at that point it becomes, something goes wrong, it's like a natural disaster, where it's just like, it happened, it's terrible, but like, no one talks about it in terms of ethical responsibility, or, you know, sometimes people get angry at the mohel for messing up, and, you know, certain mohels have bad reputations, and, um, but that's the extent of it.
1: Hey, um, Franny and Tactivist Laktivist Max on Facebook posted a letter from a rabbi on the Montreal page. And in the letter, um, he said that uh, the Jewish tradition discourages non-Jewish circumcision. Uh, No, they don't require it of non-Jews, and they also discourage non-Jewish circumcision. Um, To me, I found that funny because I don't hear any Jews going around saying, oh, you Christians, don't circumcise your kids. So I wonder if you can comment on that.
0: Sure. I'm not sure what source that rabbi was referring to. I did see that posting, um, but it doesn't sound strange to me. Um, there are a lot of uh, Jewish rituals that um, that that are traditionally discouraged among non-Jews. So, for example, Sabbath observance is something that you're supposed to actively discourage a non-Jew from participating in. Um, And that comes from the fact that Judaism is not a universalist religion. It's a particularist religion. There's no missionary impulse beyond getting other Jewish people to practice the religion. Um, So I'm not surprised to hear that about circumcision. Now, (laughs) historically, things didn't exactly work out that way, as we know. Uh, Len Glick mentioned in the film the prominence of Jewish physicians in uh, promoting the practice of circumcision, and of course, it makes sense to anyone who thinks about it that there would be a sort of subconscious or conscious desire to blend in. Um, if you're familiar at all with Jewish history, it's uh, you know it can be construed as a series of persecutions punctuated by short periods of peace, and um, you know circumcision was often used as a way to deride jews and to ridicule them um you know most famously in the nazi era they would just pull someone's pants down and if they were circumcised they're off to the gas chamber kind of situation right so knowing being familiar with that history it makes perfect sense that someone would be relieved and maybe even want to promote something that would um take this away as a distinguishing physical characteristic um, that marked Jews as Jews. Um, So that's... And that's sort of been the history in this country. Uh, Again, I'm not implying that there's a conspiracy. It's just a very natural thing for a a persecuted people group to not want to be persecuted. And anything that can uh, prevent them from being persecuted would be looked upon positively.
1: At the end of the video, you showed... um like a quote or whatever, like a what? text, you showed text, yeah. and it said that the only countries that were still circumcising were the United States and Israel. What do you mean by that? Because as far am I, as I am aware, um, there are much more countries than just those two.
0: Okay, if you look closely at the language I used, yeah. I said um, the last countries in the world where routine infant circumcision is performed. Now, what I meant by routine infant circumcision is more than 50% for non-religious reasons. Um, and that statement, I, I've been criticized for that statement for a number of reasons, and I've recently discovered, actually, that um, in Egypt, they're, start, they're circumcising babies in hospitals. I don't know if it's more than 50%, um, but they're circumcising infants. there. Of course, the, the, the biggest population in the world that circumcises boys are Muslims. Um, But again, that's mostly performed at childhood, not at infancy. So if I'm looking at who's performing routine infant circumcision, Israel and the United States are the most prominent examples. Um, There are many other places that perform circumcision. But again, at infancy, um, there, uh, there are some places where it's catching on more, especially places that have, you know, heavy American influence. And of course, now there's a big push to get Africans to circumcise their male infants for, you know, so-called health reasons. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I meant.
2: Okay, so I'm gonna get it to you in two parts because I'm remembering. So firstly, um, sometimes when I'm demonstrating, um, someone will say to me that's anti-Semitic and I am not Jewish, you know, and so I respond however I respond, but I'm wondering how, despite you know that you are Jewish, but like how you might respond now being in this conversation in this community and having met some non-Jewish intactivists, um, if you could even respond to that. Um, and then the second thing is now you've made this film, I know the internet is a huge tool, but from everything you've been steeped in, like what do you see, do you have any feedback on what could be the most impactful in changing the numbers, you know, mostly non-religious circumcision.
0: Sure. So, to the first question about anti-Semitism. Um, I think that there's a narrative out there that was helped along recently by the whole foreskin man debacle. Um, that suggests that the motivation behind intactivism is anti-semitism or some kind of radical anti-religious um, agenda. And I've heard this from a number of quarters, um, not only Jews, but I've heard it from a lot of Jews. Um, I think I'm a bit of an expert now in intactivism. <laughs> I've been traveling around the country, meeting some of the most prominent intactivists on this continent, and I, I just I think it's a it's a complete um, fabrication like I, I don't see any evidence of significant anti-semitism among anti-activists, and I certainly don't see that as in any way a motivating factor behind people's concerns over this issue it's just not what, what I'm seeing at all um, so and I try to tell people that um, you know, and I, I think I have some authority to speak about this now. Uh, this film came out four years ago, and I've met quite a few intactivists and and spent more time than most Jews have <laughs> with intactivists. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm not sure to what extent this is a genuine fear, and to what extent it's a political manipulation by certain people to prevent things from happening that they don't want to have happen. Uh, I hope to you know, learn some more about this. Uh, As I go forward in this tour, I'm going to have a number of encounters with some people who are involved with these efforts. So I hope to be able to have the opportunity to ask some pointed questions about that. Um, But, um, I mean, I think the most uh, obvious response is um, the majority of circumcisions are non-religious. And so clearly, (laughs) that's what we're concerned with. That's what, you know, that's, it just, it's so obvious to me, and it's so apparent just from my interactions that this is just not an issue, really. I, I, there are marginal characters within intactivism who I've seen online or elsewhere exhibit some kind of you know, conspiracy theory bordering on anti-Semitic rhetoric, but it's very marginal. I, I don't see that, and even for those people, I don't really think that's what motivates their intactivism at all um what's most effective well that's different for different people i'm finding just watching my film right so i tried to have a lot of stuff in there pack it in um with different kinds of material some people respond to the sexual effects of circumcision that's a huge part for me like i think from an ethical perspective a big Part of the problem is that you have these permanent lifelong consequences to sexual experience. So, to me, that's a really important thing. I devote a lot of time in the film to it. And I went to great lengths to try and um, explore that in the film. But there are people who are just not moved by that at all. I mean, there are lots of people who just like, okay, you know, whatever, sex, you know, I like sex, fine. But then they see the, the circumcision scene at the end and it's traumatic and, and it changes their mind about it. Um, so it's really, a, a, you have to approach this as a kind of multifaceted thing. Um, and really try and educate yourself as best you can on all of the different sides of it. You need to take a multi interdisciplinary approach to the subject, educate yourself in all these different fields so that when you meet someone, um, you can sort of get a sense of what they might might respond to most or what their concerns are. And um, provide them with the appropriate information that would be effective for them. Um, I think there are a lot of access points to this subject, and um, being as well equipped as you can to talk about any of them at any given time, I think, is a really good strategy.
1: Do you ever um, get accused of being like self-hating, a self-hating Jew in your in your line of work? Because there's a lot of A lot of times where I've heard, um, you know, accusations like, you know, the anti-circumcision movement is based on anti-Semitism, but there's also some Jews who say that if you're not, you know, for Israel and for circumcision, you know, you're hypocritical or self-hating. How do you respond to that?
0: Yeah, so this has just been, this has been really interesting for me. Um, (laughs) I can now talk about the quality of the hate mail that I get for my two different projects and uh, compare them. And um, what's been wonderfully interesting to me is that um, the hate mail that I got for Cut, there wasn't a lot of it and it was always anonymous. And for the most part, um, Jews who watch my film understand that I'm taking a very respectful approach to the tradition and that I value the tradition, that I'm not coming at this from a place of hate or from a place of self-loathing. Um, the hate mail I'm getting for a people without a land is um, is much harsher, much more voluminous. They're sending hate mail to members of my family, and um, th- it's not anonymous. They always have their name, their address, and their phone number at the end of it, which tells me a lot about um, the sort of what people think about these two issues and what they're more threatened by, honestly. Um, Yeah, I get called a self-hating Jew a lot, but it has to do with my ideas about the state of Israel more than it does about my ideas of about circumcision and, you know, I kind of expected, I anticipated some of my critics to link the two things to be like, huh, why should we take anything he says seriously? He's against circumcision. What kind of a nut is against circumcision? And it hasn't really happened that way. I mean, just from the beginning, our first public screening of CUT was at the University of Chicago's Hillel. And uh, in Chicago, the Jewish organizations are all sort of fed by this massive thing called uh, the JUF, the Jewish United Fund. And they sort of funnel lots and lots of money to all all sorts of Jewish concerns in Chicago, including the Hillel that I was showing my film at. And they called up the director of the Hillel a couple of days before the screening, and they said, how can you have this film here? And the director thought they were going to start talking about the importance of circumcision. What they were actually objecting to was there's a single line in my bio that said, Eli did not serve in the Israeli military for ethical reasons. And because of that line in my bio, they were putting pressure on the Hillel to shut the whole thing down. And the director was f- flabbergasted. He was like, you realize what the film's about? <laughs> You're complaining about this line in his bio? Do you realize that he's, he's questioning circumcision? They didn't want to hear about it. All they cared about was that I had dared to say that I didn't serve in the Israeli military for ethical reasons. So it's been that way ever since. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com.